All right, all right. Good morning, good morning, good morning. How is everyone doing today? I hope you're doing great after that excitement right there. Uh, some of you are wondering what in the world just took place. Well, you're not alone. I'm wondering the same thing. Um, yeah, I got roped into that. Uh, so uh, at our church here at Living Hope, um, we have children chat. Uh, most every Sunday, and for the last two years, that children chat has almost always been video, and today we were able to do it in person again, and so our plan is to continue that. Uh, our plan is also to not invite Superman quite as often uh, because he's a little stressful, um, and so anyway, uh, as you can see, one of the things we like doing around here is having fun, and uh, yes, we want to worship uh, Jesus together but we want to enjoy that experience uh, because that is how God has wired us to be. All right, I am Alan Pittman. I am uh, the senior pastor and one of the elders here. And I know that some of you that came in this morning, I've maybe not had a chance to meet you and get to know you. I would love that opportunity. Um, I will make sure Superman's nowhere near me, uh, but after the service, I'll be out in the foyer. Would lo love to have an opportunity to get a chance to meet you. Uh, whether you are here in person or whether you are worshiping with us online, if this is your first time with us, we especially want to say thank you. We would love to get to know you a little bit better. That connection card that can be found right in, in front of you, or if you're online at lhbc.net backslash the hope, uh, fill out that connection card so that we can kind of get to know you and uh, give you some information about the church um, and everything like that. All right. Hopefully you've got a Bible with you. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible near you, like under a chair around you. Grab that Bible and uh, use that this morning. And if you don't have a Bible or you need another one at the house or you have a neighbor that needs one, feel free to take that Bible with you. That is our gift to you. Um, yesterday, before I jump into the message, yesterday um, I was not here, but there was a fabulous get-together that was more than a get-together. It was a, a time of praise and, and worship uh, and prayer for our ladies. And so uh, I talked to some of the ladies that were here, um, and there were about 50 ladies here. Ten of those were, were girls and 40 were adults. Um, it was a, a tremendous time, and I wanted to uh, thank those that put that together and those that served, uh, including Garrett, who is not a lady, but he was serving uh, yesterday. Um, and I wanted to also give you some information if you don't already know that, and that is God's up to some really cool things among the women here in our church body, and one of the things is our elders have asked two of our ladies to head up the events portion of women's ministry, and so just so you'll know who that is, Kristen Gardner and Shannon Hutton are heading that up. However, they're wanting lots of help and uh, everything from other ladies that are part of our church body, so if you know Kristen or Shannon, get to uh, know them a little bit better uh, as they uh, help plan some of the things that are coming up in 2022. All right, looks like the computer is kind of going haywire, so we may or may not have verses up at different times. I know they're working on that, uh, but grab your Bible, turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts is right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are in a series this year called The Way Forward, and we're going to be studying the book of Acts. And uh, we're walking through verse by verse, and so this morning we're still in chapter one, and we'll be in chapter one again next week. Um, if you ever want to kind of know where we're headed and maybe read the verses ahead of time, at the bottom of the sermon notes every week, there'll be a place that shows you where we'll be next week. So you can see next week we'll be in verses 15 through 26. But today we are looking at Acts chapter one, verses 12 through 14. There's sermon notes on the back of your worship guide. And then, like I said, there should be scripture on the screen and or you can be holding a Bible as we're reading together. 
Kind of previously what happened in in the book of Acts so far is Jesus, uh, of course, was uh, crucified, buried, and resurrected. In the book of Acts, we see that after his resurrection, he spent 40 days with his disciples, teaching them all about the kingdom of God. And then at the end of those 40 days, he ascended into heaven. And you can read all about that in the verses kind of preceding the ones we're going to be looking at today. But he ascended into heaven. But before he ascended into heaven, he left his disciples and he left you and I with an important mission or task. Look with me at Acts chapter 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 8. And here is what Jesus told his disciples just as he was ascended into heaven. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And you and I are given that same task as well. And so as we pick up the story this morning, we see that the disciples now have seen, they've witnessed with their own eyeballs, Jesus ascend into heaven. Can you imagine what those disciples must have been feeling? Can you imagine what they must have been experiencing? I'm going to kind of uh, presume some things. I don't know that this is what they were feeling, but I would anticipate these are the kinds of things they were feeling. They first and foremost must have been excited, whatever word you want to use there. They must have been like pumped big time at what they just witnessed. Perhaps you've heard of the phrase, um, a mountaintop experience. They literally had a mountaintop experience. They were on top of a mountain outside of the city of Jerusalem, and they saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and, and they saw all of the magnificence associated with that. If you've ever kind of had a high spiritual moment, that is the kind of thing these guys had experienced. They also had been reminded that the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, would be coming in power in the very near future. And they'd also been given this mission or this task to go and tell everyone. So the excitement must have really been there. And at the same time, I anticipate there was a great bit of uncertainty. And that uncertainty must have been, okay, Jesus just told us that the Holy Spirit is coming, but the question is, when? Like Jesus just told us the Holy Spirit is coming and we've received power, but what's that going to be like? Like, what can we expect? And then they must have felt uncertain because they had spent three years with this guy. They had lived with him and heard him teach and they'd heard him preach. They'd seen miracles happen, including his own resurrection and his ascension. Their leader who had been with them for three years now was gone and no longer physically present with them. They must have felt uncertain. And I think in this moment, while excited, they must have said, now what? Now what? And so you can see at the title of this message I have given it is what to do when you don't know what to do. I think the disciples, to a certain degree, must have been feeling like, just don't know what to do right now. And I think that if we were all being honest with ourselves and with each other, there's a sense in our own life, whether it be personally or with our family or with our career or with our nation or with our church family or whatever's going on in your life, there must be a sense to a certain degree of us thinking, what now? Like, I don't know what to do next. What should we do? I'm glad you asked that. Let's look at what God's Word has to say. We're going to read three verses, chapter 1, verses 12, 13, and 14, and try to unpack what it might look like and what we should do when we don't know quite what to do. Here's what it says. 
It says, then they, talking about the disciples, those who had been at his ascension, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, or it could say the Mount of Olives, same place, just different way to phrase it. This is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, and when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. I wanted to start with a little bit of geography. They gave me a laser pointer today. Let me see if I can use it good. I want to start with a little bit of geography. It says that the, the ascension happened at the Mount of Olives. So let's look at this map, and it's going to show us where uh, the Mount of Olives is. All right, there we go. All right, I found it. All right, you see over here on the right-hand side, this is uh, north up here, just like normal, all right? And on the east side is the Mount of Olives. You see right here is the temple, and then this is the city of Jerusalem, Okay. Then in, the, in between the Mount of Olives and the city, you see something called the Kidron Valley. And then I want you to see the chart or the scale right here. You see this scale? That's 1,000 feet. So you can see this picture is fairly small. So the distance from Mount of Olives to the city of Jerusalem is very, very short, okay? In fact, you would have seen there in verse, uh, let's look at it again, down in verse 14, is, it, is no, 12, it says, uh, it's a Sabbath day's journey away. A Sabbath day journey is simply a way to phrase what the rabbis had to say. What I mean by that is the, the, the Old Testament was clear that they were to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And then along the way, the rabbis kind of added their own commentary. And they said, you know what? We got to describe and define what does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy. That means one should not travel a certain distance. How far should they not travel? Let's think. 2,000 cubits. How about 2,000 cubits? No further than 2,000 cubits. Everybody here knows what a cubit is, right? Uh, no, you don't. All right. So uh, most of us probably don't. I had to look it up to be reminded. Uh, a cubit is like 18 inches. And so uh, 2,000 cubits is approximately about one kilometer uh, or about uh, almost three-fourths of a mile. And so they could travel no further than three-fourths of a mile or three laps around a track on a Sunday or a, sorry, a Sabbath day. So that'd be a Saturday. And so that's how close Mount of Olives was to Jerusalem. And so that's kind of just to see some context where everything is located. Um, and then I want you to think about what all took place on the Mount of Olives. Lots of things took place on the Mount of Olives, including this concept of, of um, some prophetic words that are shared. For example, if you go back to Zechariah, then you'll find that Zechariah talks about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord would come when when the Lord would stand on the Mount of Olives and the, the ascension or the resurrection would begin to happen. How unique or interesting that Jesus ascended on the very place that the prophets talked about resurrection taking place. Also on the Mount of Olives, there are lots of graves. In fact, they're still there today. And the graves are a reminder that, yes, death is reality, but the Lord will bring resurrection. So I want us to show one more picture and we'll move on from the Mount of Olives. Um, so right here, the dome is uh, actually a Muslim uh, mosque, but it's on the grounds of the temple ground. And we're going to kind of see the wall right around here. And the vantage point where we're looking from is the Mount of Olives. So you see it's very, very close. There's a valley down below. 
all of these things right here are tombstones, okay? That's a, that's a graveyard, and that's just a small part of it. If you get there sometime, you'll see grave after grave after grave. But the good news is that Jesus was ascended into heaven from that place, pointing that he is victor over death and the grave and sin. So that's kind of where we are geographically, all right? So Jesus has ascended into heaven. The disciples are a lot bit excited and probably a lot bit uncertain and unsure of themselves. What will they do next? So we read the text. Let's now consider the things that I think this text points us towards. That because while the disciples didn't know what to do, they at least knew one thing to do. And your sermon note says this. The sermon note says, do what Jesus has already told you to do. What should you and I do when we're not quite sure what to do? The first step is to obey him. The first step is to do what we know he has told us to do. And I know what you may be thinking. All right, Alan, what did the disciples do in this moment that was direct obedience to what the Lord had already told them to do? Let's look at verse 12, and then we're going to look down in verse 4. In verse 12, as soon as the ascension took place, it says, Then they returned to Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem. The way the disciples in this moment obeyed the words of Christ is they went back to the city of Jerusalem. Why, why or how is that obedience? Look back at verse 4. In verse 4, before Jesus was ascended into heaven, as he's having conversations with his disciples, as he's teaching them during those 40 days, he tells them, depart not from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise from the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. He said, guys, whatever you do, don't leave the city. Stay right here. Stay put until the Holy Spirit comes upon you with power. And at this point, while they experienced something incredible at the ascension, they had not experienced the fulfillment of Jesus' words by the filling of the Holy Spirit, and so they knew one thing to do, and that one thing with certainty was, hey guys, we're not supposed to go anywhere else, we're supposed to go back to Jerusalem. They could have gone to Galilee, they could have gone to their home places, they could have scattered, they could have done lots of things, but the reality is, they knew what Jesus had told them to do, and they said yes to him, and they went back to Jerusalem. I want us to look uh, real briefly in verse 13. It says, when they got back to Jerusalem, they entered the upper room, and then there's a phrase in the ESV that says, where they were staying. This staying is not like an Airbnb staying. This staying is not like a hotel staying. This staying is not like spending the night at somebody's house. Like this staying has a sense to it of some sense of permanence. And so there is, uh, in my mind, I believe, a sense that they have been there for those 40 days. That's the place where Jesus was teaching them. We don't know that for a fact, but that's what I think it's pointing towards, and that they had spent 40 days with Jesus, and they knew that's where they were supposed to be, and they went back to where they had been staying. And went to this upper room. Do you remember anything about the phrase upper room and, and Jesus' last moments before his arrest? Do you remember this? They had the Passover meal together. It says they did it in an upper room. We don't know that it's the same upper room, but perhaps it is. And so all along, Jesus had spent time with them there. This is what they knew. They knew they were supposed to be back in Jerusalem, and they went back to Jerusalem. I'm going to be referencing lots of scripture without reading it this morning because if we did, we'd be all over the place. But maybe you want to jot down in your notes. I'd encourage you to go back. Speaking of upper rooms and waiting on the Holy Spirit, jot down John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. 
In John chapter 14, in fact, I was in one of the classes this morning, and they referenced John 14 uh, in the book of Acts class. But uh, in John 14, we see Jesus at the upper room, the evening of his Passover meal, before his arrest. He's in the upper room, and he's teaching the disciples, and he's promising that the Holy Spirit would come. And here they are back in an upper room, perhaps the upper room, praying for the very thing that the Holy Spirit would show up. They were doing the one thing they knew they were supposed to do, returned to Jerusalem. Now I know what some of us may be thinking. That's really not a big deal. Like Jesus said, return to the city or stay in the city, and they did. Like, is that really a big step of obedience? That doesn't seem very challenging, doesn't seem very difficult. Perhaps it's more difficult than we think. Perhaps they didn't want to go back to Jerusalem because Jesus had been arrested in Jerusalem, been crucified in Jerusalem, and Jesus is no longer there. Surely they felt safer in their hometowns. And even if that weren't the case, even if they were comfortable going back to Jerusalem, this is not a tiny step of obedience. It's a big one. Anytime we obey God, it's a big deal. If they had not taken this step of obedience, God is sovereign. He could have done things the way he wanted to. But if they had not taken this step of obedience, they had not been put in a place. They would not have put themselves in a place to experience the rest of the story. So this step of obedience is not insignificant. It's a big deal. So here's where you and I fit in. You and I are called by God and by his word to obey him at all times. So this morning, I want to ask you to kind of ask yourself, am I obeying God? Or the way that I phrased it here, am I doing what God has already told me to do? All too often, we're looking for an answer down the way, or we want to know what the rest of our story is going to look like, or the rest of our life, or, or those of you that have kids that are kind of college or older high school years, maybe they're thinking about, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? How am I, what job am I going to have? What does God have for me in the future? If we get so focused on those things, we forget the moment, and we don't do the very thing that God's calling us to do here and now. I don't know where you are in your life. But you and I need to begin with this obeying the thing that God has told us to do. As I said at the front end, there's a lot of uncertainty in life right now. And there's a lot of uncertainty because of things that have happened around us and that are happening around us. And, and, and the reality is this. We may find ourselves, what's the next thing I'm supposed to do? What's the next step that our church is supposed to take? I say that the way we begin to answer that question, the way we begin to think about the way forward is not a mile down the road, but instead a short Sabbath day's walk. And let's start with the simple act of obedience. So if we're called to do the things that God's already called us to do, let's highlight a few things that we know are on his agenda for us. For instance, Mark chapter 1, verse 17, and several other places in the Gospels, we see Jesus use two words when he calls people to follow him. Do you know what those two words are? Follow me. When he calls some of the original disciples, some of the very men who are mentioned in this text, the thing that he said to, him was, to them was, follow me. He then says, I'll make you fishers of men. He describes other things, but it starts with a simple command to follow him. So if you and I want to do the right thing, we need to remember to begin by simply following him. And then to reference what I mentioned a moment ago, John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, keep my commandments. So not only should we follow him, but we should 
keep his commandments. As you read God's word, as you consider what God's word has to say, if there's a commandment or instruction or a law, say yes to him and obey that commandment. Another thing that we're commanded to do is to not forsake assembling together or not neglect coming together. You may want to jot this verse down, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. The writer of Hebrews says, do not neglect the assembling of the saints. It is so good, and I know that we have some that are on quarantine right now, some that for health reasons need to uh, feel like they still need to stay home for a bit longer, all of that, but I like seeing more people in this room because God's word commands us to come together to assemble with the saints. Because the church, while we should scatter and be about doing the work of God, yes, the definition of the church requires the church to gather as well. We can't be the body if we don't come together as well. So I'm going to encourage you that if you're at home and you're kind of thinking, should I be back in the building, I'm asking you to prayerfully consider that maybe God's calling you to be back in the building sooner than you realize. Those of us that are in this room right now, would we prioritize being together with the body, not just infrequently, but Every time we're in town and not sick and not at work, this is a big deal. Do what we're supposed to do. And one of those is assembling as the body. Another verse you may want to write down is Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 verses 4 through 8 talks a great deal about being the body of Christ. Not only should we assemble together, but instead of just assembling together, we are to commit to a local body. We're to serve in a local body. So can I just pause for just a second and give us an application of this verse? And I encourage you, maybe let's turn real quick to Romans chapter 12. I didn't originally plan on reading it out loud, but I want to. Romans 12, verses 4 through 8. Paul says, for as in one body we have many members, he's talking about the body of Christ, many members of the church, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, and then he lists them. If prophecy, then do it in proportion to your faith. If service, in, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does, uh, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Here's the application. I believe that every person in this room and watching online can and should apply the truths that are found in Romans chapter 12. If we're to do what Jesus tells us to do, then we should commit to and serve in and be a part of actively a local body. And so some of you, you've been coming for a few weeks or a few months or maybe even for a few years and you've never decided, I'm going to join this church. And I'm just going to tell you that if that's you, I believe that God, since he has you here, his intention is for you to be a member of this church. So I've got good news for you. On the last Sunday of this month, which is February the 27th, we're having a membership class. If you've never joined this church then make plans to be at the membership class on Sunday, February the 27th. Learn more about us and join the church. Stop dating the church and join and commit to the church. So I know who you are. No, I'm teasing. But in all seriousness, I encourage you to sign up to be a part of our church family. 
um, and you can sign up at lhbc.net backslash the hope. Others of you that are already members are going, yeah, that's right, they should join. All right, let me come to you now. God is calling us to commit to and serve and actively lean in to the body of Christ that he has us in. If you are a member of a living hope, of living, I don't know why I said thee, of living hope Baptist church, then God has you for a reason and he wants you to lean in and press in and serve and walk alongside of and be accountable and love and nurture and be built up and to build others up as well. And he wants you to give financially as well he wants you to serve with your talents and your time and your treasures so church members here's what i'm laying out to you if you're a member of this church family and you're not serving somewhere in this church family stop that and say yes and begin to serve now, I get that there are times physical ailments and things like that that prevent us in seasons from serving, but by and large, the majority of our church family is in a healthy place where we can serve somewhere, whether it be on Sunday mornings or during the course of the week. If you're not serving, start serving. God also calls us to bring our finances and give financially. The way we do ministry is not only with our talents and gifts, but also with our finances and so we don't talk about it a lot but the reality is we should be giving and there's offering boxes in the back there's ways to give online I believe that God's word is clear we should be tithing giving a 10% so I'm just saying if this is your church family press in so here's the deal you don't know what to do the first step is to do what God has already told you to do and obey him for some of us There may be some kind of sin we need to confess. I listed a few things on my notes. Perhaps you you have a need to confess anger or greed or lust or sexual sin or some kind of addiction or or the desire for power and control or or you may even be contributing to disunity in, in the church family. Whatever it is that God is saying to you this morning say yes to him say no to sin repent of sin and begin to do the things that God has called you to do so in moments of uncertainty the first step do what God has already told you to do the second one is this the second thing we need to do in addition to obedience is to spend time with other believers I've already alluded to that with the, the idea of, of not forsaking the assembling of the saints, but I want us to spend just a moment on this idea of spending time with other believers. Look at Acts chapter 1. In verses 13 and 14, we find out who all's there. It says that the disciples are there, and you'll notice the list. There are 11 men's names listed. That means it's the 12 disciples minus one. Judas Iscariot is dead now. It's the other 11 disciples, so they are there. And then look down in verse 14, it says, in addition to the 11 disciples, it says that there's also women and Mary, who's the mother of Jesus, and it says that Mary, uh, sorry, Jesus' brothers are there as well. And to look one verse ahead, in verse 15, it says there was about 120 people there. So we know uh, 12 by name, and then Jesus' brothers as well, which we know is brother James, uh, uh, Jesus' brother James. So all of these people are, are together, okay? And so here's what I want us to look at. The disciples in this moment of uncertainty, leaving the ascension, going to Jerusalem, they did the right thing and they stayed together. Do you remember what took place about 40 days prior to that? When Jesus was arrested, what did the disciples do? 
they skedaddled, they split, they, they scattered, they didn't stay together, they ran everywhere because they were scared when Jesus was arrested. In this moment, they could have been scared, but instead they stayed together instead of scattering. And this time, during un the uncertainty, after Jesus' departure, instead of running from each other, they turn to each other. I love that these 11 men are all listed by name. Did you know of these 11 names, eight of them are not mentioned again? Only Peter, John, and James, and James is only mentioned because he died, he was killed. But the others are, are the only ones that are, are listed there. And the reason I, I, I mention again, the reason I say that is because the idea is that it's not about these men. It's about, these, um, it's, about, it's about what God is doing, and it's about his kingdom, okay? Uh, it's never about isolated people. Uh, I'm going to say a word of prayer real quick, guys, all right? God, you are faithful and you are good, and we pray that you would uh, meet all of our needs. I pray for Danny and others right now in this moment that your glory would shine through. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Uh, we've got adequate folks that are, that are helping out right now, so if we can just stay uh, focused on, on God's word, and if you want to pray from your seats, you can do that uh, as well, all right? So in this scenario, we see the disciples are mentioned by name. And, and these disciples are interesting characters. I want to list a few of the things about these characters of Jesus that were his disciples. They came from various backgrounds. Think about all the, the backgrounds that these disciples had. There were fishermen. There was a, a hated tax collector. There was a zealot, which is a political activist. There was all kinds of people in and among the disciples. And then there were all kinds of strong personalities among the disciples, right? They were very opinionated. They were very forceful. Some of them were. Uh, they were strong-willed. They even argued over who was the greatest. Do you remember that? Like they're sitting around and they're arguing, well, I'm better than you are. I, I, I think I'm more important than someone else. As you think about all this diversity, it would have been easy for these men to become divisive and argue with one another. I want us to also pay attention to some other people that were there. Did you mention, did you see that women are mentioned? Back in that culture, women would not be given prominent places. And yet here's one named by name, and they are there with Jesus' disciples, and so this is a big deal. Also, we know for a fact that poor people were in the audience, but we also think that there's probably rich people that were there. Let me tell you who I think one of the people that was there is, and that is Joseph of Arimathea. Do you know that name? The Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea was there when Jesus was buried. He was rich. He had a lot of money. It had a place that they could borrow for a tomb. And we don't know for a fact that Joseph was there, but most likely he was because he was, there was 120 people there. Another interesting character that probably was there was Nicodemus. Do you know anything about Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Guess what the Sanhedrin did 40 days prior to that? They had Jesus uh, executed. Now, Nicodemus wasn't a part of that, but his group was. The disciples could have looked at Nicodemus and been angry at him. There's also um, Jesus' brothers are there. Up until this point, they've also always disbelieved in Jesus, and that kind of caused a friction between the disciples. I hope you're hearing me list all of this diversity that was there. 
And the reason the diversity is important is because in this moment of uncertainty, their, their leader is gone in a leadership vacuum. They could have become explosive towards each other and angry towards each other, but instead of doing that, they gather together. And in this time of uncertainty, in our world today, we could, we could become bitter and angry at each other and spar with one another, or we can do what the disciples did, and that is come together in unity and in community. I do want us to see one thing. I don't know if you noticed this or not. You probably didn't realize it, but the disciples drove cars back then, right? You saw that they had a Honda because they came in one accord. All right, that was a bad joke, but I tried. That's a bad joke. Let's look down at that word, though, because I do want us to see that, that phrase. Look in verse 11. It says, all of these people were together with one accord. In all seriousness, let's consider what the Greek word one accord is all about. It's a unique word in Greek. It's a, it's a compound word. It's very long, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but there are two words that come together, and in the New Testament, this word is used 12 times. Of those 12 times, 10 of them are in the book of Acts. It's the sense that, that there's a Christian community that comes together with one mind, with one spirit, in unity together. In fact, there's kind of a musical picture. I shared this with John Seal this week since he is a band director, but it's a really cool concept because the idea of this word carries a musical con connotation to it, and that is that, that while a different number of different notes are played in a band or, or in a symphony or any kind of orchestra, and I'm not a musician, so I might not say it exactly right, but while there are different instruments used and different notes are played, they all come together when done right in harmony, and they harmonize with one another both in pitch and in tone. The church is made up of many different people, and yet when we allow God's work to be at work within us, we can be with one accord while we're playing all the same together that the Holy Spirit harmonizes us together. The Holy Spirit blends together the lives of the members of the church into a, a beautiful masterpiece. There's a great place where this same word, one accord, is used. Turn with me to Romans chapter 15. It's not going to be one accord in your translation, but the Greek word is the exact same word. Look at Romans chapter 15 verses 5 through 7. Paul talks about what it looks like, what the motivation is and what the end result is of the church whenever we come together in unity together. Look at Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony, so there's unity there, with one another in accord. I know the word accord is there. It's not the same word as uh, what we found back in Acts chapter 1, but it says with Christ Jesus. And then the word is here, that together, the word together is the same word as with one accord back in Acts chapter 1. It says that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Why is it that as a church family we should be with one accord? Why is it as a church family we should be together, as it says here in verse 6? And the reason we should be together, the outcome of being together, what helps us to be together is when we with one voice glorify our Lord and, Je Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So the way that we can come together in community with other believers in unity is by worshiping God together. I thought it was interesting as I thought about some diversity that's in our own church body. I listed some of the diversity that's found in in Acts chapter 1. Here's some diversity in our church body. Let's begin with uh, the funniest, uh, but I will point it out, and that is some of us in this room cheer for God's team and others of us cheer against God's team. That'd be the Dallas Cowboys. Some of us are from Texas. Some of us are from Arkansas. Others are from West Virginia. Some are from Jersey. Some are from California. Some are from Washington State. And I'm probably leaving out other states that some of you are from. Some are from Nigeria. Some are from Haiti. Some are from Mexico. Some are from China. We are literally from all over the planet. Then you think about all the jobs that we have. Some are in education, some are in sales, some are homemakers, some are truck drivers, some are firefighters, some are policemen, some are working in the medical field, some are business owners. The list goes on and on. Did you know that there are people who vote differently than you do in our church family? I know it, it's a surprise. There are various views of COVID and how to respond to COVID. There are some in this room that may not view all of non-first-tier doctrine. In other words, the essentials. They may view some of the non-essential doctrines a little bit differently than you do. All of us have been impacted differently by church change and structure change within our church family. And some of us may have a little bit different thoughts on how we can move forward as a church family. But did you know in the midst of all that diversity, we can still have what the disciples had? And that is we can have unity and we can and we should be with one accord. And the way we will experience that is we get our eyes on Jesus. But to have unity as a church family, we have to, we need to be together. We need to spend time together. It's one of the reasons why the women had the prayer and praise gathering was so they could pray, they could worship, and they could be together. We as a church family need more and more of time spent together so that we can be in unity, so we can experience true community. I was talking with a friend yesterday or the day before about how social media has messed us up. We think social media is where real community takes place, and the reality is it's just a it's a veneer, right? Even the most well-intentioned social media is a veneer. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I love social media for some of my friends that are in Kansas City. I never get to see them, and I can kind of keep up with them on social media. But it's a, it, it, it's, it's a substitute for what real community is like. Real community is on the phone. Real community is, is a text. Real community is face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball. Real community is challenging one another. Real community is loving one another. Real community is serving one another. Real community is spending time together. So I want to encourage us to not neglect this. During times of uncertainty, it's easy or tempting for us to skip this step, but we must change that. I encourage you, I I, I exhort you to press in for real, authentic, intimate relationships that take place when the church family is together. We have a few things that are in place here at our church that helps you do that. Our hope groups that meet on a weekly basis are designed for that intimate community. If you're not in a hope group, I encourage you to stop by the desk out front today and sign up for a hope group. 
different discipleship opportunities and and what I call my D group or discipleship group or Bible study classes. All of these are opportunities. Serving, if you serve alongside of someone, all of these are great ways. But the reality is this, that in times of uncertainty, not only should we obey God, but we should also spend time with other believers, which is an act of obedience. And then the third thing is to pray expecting God to show up. If you don't know what to do, pray expecting God to show up. Not demanding that he show up, not on our terms, but in expectation that he's going to show up. I mean, think about the disciples. As they gathered in that upper room, they were praying that the Holy Spirit, God himself, would show up. And guess what? We're going to find out he did show up. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. It says, all these were with one accord, and they were devoting themselves to prayer. We need to begin to devote ourselves to prayer again. Prayer helps us to to bring or maintain or strengthen unity. This idea of prayer and unity go hand in hand. If we're praying together, then we're going to be unified. It's kind of hard to be praying with another brother or sister and then be angry at each other. Prayer helps bring about unity and maintain that unity. Those disciples and the others as they're gathered in the upper room, what were they praying for? It's not written specifically, but I think they were praying at least for two things. One is they were praying for the Holy Spirit to show up, and they were also praying for boldness to be his witnesses. They were given the mission in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So I think they're praying for the Holy Spirit to show up. I think they're praying for boldness to witness, and they're praying for unity among uh, themselves. And we see that prayer was a hallmark for the disciples in the early church, and it should be a hallmark for us as well. Prayer demonstrates our dependence on God. Let's look at this phrase, devotion. They were devoting themselves to prayer. What does it mean to devote ourselves to prayer? What does that Greek word mean there? It means a deep commitment. It means to be stuck to prayer, adhere to prayer, like not moving past prayer. Prayer is just a natural of of all that we do. It's a sense that, that we're committed or continuing to pray at all times. It's a persistent prayer. It's a holding on to prayer. It's holding fast to prayer. It's seeking the Lord with everything we have. This week as I studied, I came across a parable that I was very familiar with, but I forgot about the context. Look with me at Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. Jesus tells a parable about prayer. And in Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 5, he talks about a a parable. He tells a story about a guy who had a friend, and uh, and he came to somebody at midnight to his friend, and he he says there in verse 5, friend, would you give me three loaves? Because another friend has arrived, and he's been on a journey, and I don't have anything to give to him. And then in verse 7, it says, "And, and the man within, inside, will answer, and he'll say, don't bother me. The door's now shut. It's late at night, and my children are in bed with me. We're not going to get up. Verse 8, I tell you though, the man at the door will not get up, uh, sorry, the man inside will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, but because of his impudence, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And so then Jesus says, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and it will be opened to you, for everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened And then it says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? And then verse 13 is the verse that I had overlooked and missed before. If you then, 
who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It says right there, Jesus' words, if you pray to the Father for the Holy Spirit, he will give you the Holy Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong, whenever you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, but to experience his, his, his feeling, feeling or his guidance, we need to be seeking after him. And Jesus says, if you'll ask the Lord to give you the Holy Spirit, he'll answer it. I think that that's exactly what's taking place in the upper room as these disciples are persistently praying, Father, send your Holy Spirit. Father, send your Holy Spirit. Father, send your Holy Spirit. And a few days later, the Father sends his Holy Spirit. Guys, if we would pray that same prayer, then we'd experience the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our church life, and unity would be the most definite thing that would define us as a church body. It's time for us to pray expectantly and persistently and trusting God to answer us. At times of uncertainty, these disciples turned to God in prayer. And in their praying, they were actively waiting on God together. And that's the kind of thing that you and I need to do as well. Are we uncertain about what to do? Pray together. If you're unsure of which way to go or what decision to make, find someone in your church family that you can go to and you can say, I've been wanting to see what God's wanting to do in this area of my life. Would you pray alongside of me? All too often as Christians, we live a lone ranger life and we make decisions on our own. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some black and white in Scripture and you don't have to have somebody praying alongside of you about, is this a step I should take or not? Because it's clear cut. But oftentimes in our life, when we're trying to make decisions and have wisdom and have discernment, we're trying to do that on our own. We shouldn't be. We should be praying together. So here's a few kind of reflection questions as it relates to prayer. As a church body, are we truly people of prayer? Are we known as people who pray? Do we pray continually? Along those same lines, are we as a church family seeking God together? Or do we have a tendency to skip right past prayer and kind of jump into action? Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think we should pray usually. I don't think we should just pray and do nothing. I think God's asking us to actively wait on his answer while obeying the things we know to do. But the reality is all too often we skip the prayer and we just jump into action. It's like we're taking these actions, we're asking God to bless our efforts when it should be flipped all the way around. Let's seek the Lord and then as he leads, jump into action. And then combining this idea of unity and prayer and spending time together, I've got this question to ask us. When we struggle with unity, is our answer to pray together? <clears throat> if you find yourself disagreeing with another brother or sister in Christ, whether they're a member of our church or not, are, are we prone to pray with other believers or are we prone to move towards disunity as i think about everything that this world has thrown at us the last couple of years as i think about the uncertainty that many of us have experienced 
as I've witnessed a lot of us dealing with changes and things that have happened in our lives and in our church life, I see a few things and I make a few observations, and I've experienced this along the way as well, and that is sometimes we've ended up feeling cold and empty. So my question for you is, today, would you describe your spirit, your attitude, your outlook on life as one that is cold and empty? Would you say, hey, I need a spiritual warm-up, if you will, from the Holy Spirit. Like, I need the Holy Spirit to show up in my life so that I can sense his presence, so I can step out in obedience and follow him closely in his power and his strength. I need him to fill up my cup. And my thing is, if you will pray to God to fill up your cup, if you will pray persistently, expectantly, believing that he's going to give you his Holy Spirit and give you wisdom and discernment, he will. And so this morning, let us literally pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us up as individuals and as a church, and that we would say yes to him as his Holy Spirit guides us. But along the way, and as we wait for his answer, maybe, you, I'm not, I'm, here's, here's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying pray a magic prayer, rub the genie lamp, and God has to answer instantly. You're going to walk out of here feeling so much better, and all the confusion and the doubt and the worries and the anxiety and the whatever is gone. But I am saying that's the right place to start, and then as we start at that angle, let's do the things that will allow him to be at work in our lives and be active in our waiting as we wait on him to answer that. And as a reminder, what we looked at today, obey God. Say yes to him in all things. Seek community in a unified church body. Press in to your church family. You need your church family, and your church family needs you. And then pray expectantly, because God is going to show up in his power. He will. Don't skip out on any of this, because if you do, you'll miss out on what God has in store for you. Let's be people of obedience. Let's be people of community and unity together. And let's be people of prayer. I'm going to lead us in prayer. I know there's a lot that's going on today, even in the room earlier. I know there's a lot that's, are we good? Are we pretty good shape? Okay. Um, I know there's a lot that's kind of transpired. And I also know there's a lot going on in our lives right now and as a church family. My question is, can we be still long enough? Can we be still long enough to say, yes, Lord, whatever you ask of me, I'll do it? Can we be still long enough to seek unity and community and accountability with other believers? Can we be still long enough to pray expectantly and persistently? I'm going to lead us in prayer. And after the prayer, I'll be available here at the front. This altar's open for prayer. Would you say yes to him? If you've never placed your faith and your trust in Jesus, today is the day of salvation. You see, it's not about a checklist of things to do and then I'll be good with God. It's not about, uh, I'm going to be a better church member and I'll be good with God. No, it's not about being a church member to be good with God. It's about, I'm a church member because I've trusted in Jesus as my Savior. If you've not trusted him as your Savior, you can't be a member of the church yet. Say yes to Jesus. The Bible is clear. Our sin has separated us from God. But there's one answer, and that, name is, that answer is Jesus. 
He died for our sins. He was buried. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven. He is Lord and he is in charge. Would you say yes to him today? I'm going to pray for us.